G'day, everyone. It's great to see you all. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture that we are looking at today. Uh, and we pray that it will spur us on and encourage us uh, as we grasp just how wonderful your love for us really is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're going through a really tough time, I don't think there's anything more annoying uh, or less helpful, perhaps, than someone who just shares platitudes with you to try to help you. Do you know what I mean by, by platitudes? It's like when you've been really hurt by someone and this person thinks it'll be helpful for, to just say to you, oh, well, forgive and forget, you know, and you're like, not that helpful. Uh, or, or perhaps what goes around comes around as if it helps you that, that something bad might happen to the other person. Uh, it, that doesn't help you as you struggle with the pain you're in. Or when something horrible happens and you're really down and someone says, oh, well, tomorrow's another day. It's like, yes, that is a self-evident fact, but uh, I'm struggling today. Uh, often I think we say those sort of platitudes uh, out of our own discomfort. I, I think the issue is we struggle to know how to deal with someone who's hurting or someone who's in pain. And so we sort of feel like we've got to say something, to, but we're not actually that concerned about them, we're actually just dealing with our unease and our disquiet. Uh, I looked up the definition of platitude, and I think it really captures it well. This is what it said. A trite, meaningless or prosaic statement, often used as a thought-terminating cliché, aimed at quelling social, emotional or cognitive unease. That's true, isn't it? That's why we say those those sort of sayings to one another, these meaningless little half-truths to try to make ourselves feel better. Uh, who were the platitude givers extraordinaire in the Bible? Who were the, the champion platitude givers? If you know the book of Job, it was Job's three friends, wasn't it? His three friends, I always get their names wrong so I wrote them down, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. Here they, they come across their friend who has lost everything. He's lost absolutely everything. And instead of just sort of sitting down with him in his pain and saying, Job, this is awful and we don't understand why it's happened. Instead of saying that, they came up with simplistic sort of half-right theological truths to try to get Job to get back on his feet. Today we come to Romans 8.28. I want you to look at Romans 8.28. It's the key verse of today's passage, which at first glance might actually come across like one of those platitudes. So verse 28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now I have seen Christians use that verse and often abbreviate that verse into a platitude, especially when they put on posters with pictures of puppies and, and, and baby chickens and, and, and that sort of thing. They think it's just saying it will work out in the end. That's how I hear Christians use that verse, it will work out in the end. Uh, or God will make some good come out of this. That might be true, but it's not what this verse is saying. Whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger, is often how people sort of use this, this verse. See what you can learn from this. Those are platitudes. That is not what Romans 8.28 is saying. This is not some trite verse to encourage someone who's struggling a bit. This is actually the most profound theological truth that we need to know if we are going to persevere as Christians. Troy said a couple of weeks ago, and he said it again leading the service this morning, he thinks Romans 8 might be the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, and there's a reason we've, we've broken it down into three weeks. It's actually been four weeks, but I took a week for Vision Sunday in the middle. But I think if it's the greatest chapter... 
Uh, whether that's true or not, this is one of the most important truths to believe and hold on to. It's that important. So let's get into it. Come with me into this last part of Romans 8. Uh, I want to focus on the message so far, first of all, because Romans 8 is all one argument. And as I say, we've been working through it over a number of weeks. Romans 8 is all about how we, Christians, face suffering in this broken world. As Christians, we live in what we call the in-between time. It's a phrase we use sometimes. We, we live in the in-between times. See, as we've learned in Romans, if you trust in Jesus, you have been justified by God. What does that mean? You've been declared innocent by God. You've been made right with God. God has declared you innocent. Jesus has died for your sins. He has washed you clean. So as it says at chapter 8, verse 1, go to chapter 8, verse 1. As it says there, it says, Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. That is everything Romans has been saying up to that point. If you are a Christian, you are forgiven. You are washed clean. There is no condemnation. You do not need to fear the condemnation of God. That is one part of the wonderful truth. But Jesus has not returned yet. So we're living in this in-between time. Jesus has not returned yet to bring in his kingdom once and for all. And so we still live in these fallen, sinful, broken bodies. See, we know that we're justified, we know that we're forgiven, but we still struggle and the reality is we all still sin. More than that, we still live in this broken, fallen world that's impacted by sin. Uh, there is still hurt in our world, there is still pain in our world, there's still suffering in our world, there's still sin in our world and there is still death in our world. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, we will suffer in this time in which we live. He doesn't want you to think following Jesus means you'll have a free and easy life. He doesn't want you to think that following Jesus means this life won't have pain. He doesn't want you to have a rose-coloured glasses view of what life looks like. Suffering will be a part of this life until Christ returns. And so the question he wants to help us with is, well, how do we persevere in our faith in the face of those struggles and those pains? How do we keep trusting Jesus? And so the answer Romans chapter 8 keeps giving us is this. And we need to remember this every time this comes up. Paul says, remember what you look forward to. That's the argument of Romans chapter 8. Remember verse 18. Go back to verse 18. Troy shared it with us a couple of weeks ago. Look at it again. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You see what he's saying? He's saying, whatever sufferings you face in this life, they are not worth comparing to how wonderful it will be for us when Christ returns, for those who are found trusting in Jesus, that is. Now, here's the thing. If I said that to you, if I said to you, whatever sufferings you're facing, they're not worth comparing to, to what is in store for you in the future. I think there is a danger that would come across as an insensitive platitude. If I said that to you, because frankly, I haven't suffered very much in my life. And some of you have undergone things that I, I haven't undergone. And so you might say, oh, well, you can say that, Phil, but, but if you knew what I'd been through, you wouldn't be able to say that. But that's why you have to remember, it's not me saying it. First of all, it's the Word of God, and so it comes from Jesus, 
who has suffered everything and more than any human being has ever dealt with. But more than that, it's the Apostle Paul. And he knew suffering. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul in Acts, he had rocks thrown at his head. He was run out of town after town after town. In one town, he only escaped because they lowered him in a basket out of a window in in the city wall. He was totally rejected by his own people. And then even his Christian brothers at points rejected him and abandoned him and left him. He was thrown into jail over and over again just for preaching the gospel. But he could say, whatever I have suffered... It's not worth comparing to the glory you will see and know when Christ returns. So his point is, it's worth it. Keep trusting Jesus no matter what happens. And so now as we come to this last part of the chapter, we come to the next key point that the Apostle Paul is making about how to deal with difficulties in this life, how to deal with suffering. Now it's really important, and so I keep stressing this, he does not offer the hope that suffering will go away in this life. He says, your suffering may never end in this life. If you think about it, Paul actually never got out of prison in Rome. He died in Rome. He was put to death for his faith. Paul's saying, your sickness may never be cured. Your pain may never be alleviated. That relational issue that, that burdens you and keeps you awake at night may actually never be resolved. Paul talked about having a thorn in the flesh that, that, that just he would never go away. Whatever the suffering, it may not ever finish in this life. God doesn't promise you on the other side that your career goals will be met. God doesn't promise you that, that you will have a charmed life. But what does he promise in verse 28? Come with me to it again. See, it's not even that God will make good things happen for you out of bad things, though he often does. God promises that whatever happens... He is working to bring about the greatest good for you that you could ever know. God promises that he will bring you to glory. That's what he promises. God promises that he will bring you home into his kingdom and you will not miss out. And that is a far greater promise than any other promise we could ever receive. So let's think about the promise together, what I've called the greatest promise, verses 28 to 30. So look at those three verses. First of all, who is the promise to? Who's the promise to in verses 28 to 30? We see it there. It's to those who love God. So God does not promise anything for those who reject him. God does not promise anything for those who ignore him. So a person could cure cancer. You could give more money to charity than has ever been given in the history of the world. You could be the best person since I don't know who you think is the best person. God says, no, if you do not love me, it is all for nothing. Now, how do you, what does that look like to love God? Well, it's someone who listens to him. It's someone who puts their trust in his son, the Lord Jesus. That's actually what the whole book of Romans has been setting out. What is a Christian? That is the person God makes this promise to. This promise is for Christians. But it's interesting. On the one hand, it's for those who love God, which is what we do. But then look again, in the same breath, he says, it's for those who are called according to his promise. Now, this is that great truth of the Scripture. When you became a Christian, you decided to become a Christian. When you became a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus. But then, once you became a Christian, you then realised, actually, that was God at work in me. 
That was God drawing me to him. I love how Christopher Ashe puts it in his commentary on Romans. It'll come up on the screen, look with me. He says, the entrance to the Christian life is like an archway. As we approach from the outside, we see the open invitation. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden. But after we enter, we look back and see over the inside the words chosen from before the foundation of the world. If we go on, thanks, Gar. It says both are equally true. All are invited to come, but those who come learn later that their coming and their subsequent perseverance are entirely by the grace of God. You see, that is what it is to be a Christian. We love God. We follow Jesus. But that's because God has first called us. And so that takes us to the content of this promise. What does God promise us? Basically, he promises us, if he has started his work in us, he is going to finish it. Next to my bed is a pile of about 10 books. When, when our bedroom gets a clean... I didn't want to say when Victoria cleans our bedroom, but, but when our bedroom gets a clean, uh, they often pile up higher than the bedside table when they're put on the floor, because that's what Victoria does. She puts them on the floor in the hope I'll actually take them back to the bookshelf. But in every one of those books is a bookmark. Sometimes it's five pages in, sometimes it's 100 pages in, sometimes it's 400 pages in. The bookmark marks the point where I got to in the book where I just could not be bothered anymore. That's what it marked. Or where I was given five new books for my birthday or for Christmas. And I said, those books are really boring. This one looks exciting. And so, I start, so I've got all these books. God is not like that with us. If you are a Christian, God has started his work in you and he promises to finish it. And here is the amazing thing. God started that work in you before the creation of the world. Look at what it says from verse 29. I call this the golden chain. Look at it. It says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, please follow along with me and understand everything God has done in you and everything God has done for you. First of all, it says God foreknew you. Now, that doesn't mean he knew about you. It doesn't mean he knew you were a really nice person, so he thought, I'll, I'll look after them. It doesn't mean you're the faithful sort. You'd make a good Christian. That's not what it means. It says, no, God thought you into being. Before time began, God said, I am going to make Phil. God said, I'm going to make Brett. God said, I'm going to make Ingrid. God said, I am going to make this person. And more than that, Look at what it then says. It says, he then predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. God decided before time that he would save you. He decided he would give you his Holy Spirit. He decided he would make you one of his children. In the same way that Jesus is God's son, he said, I'm going to make them a child of God. Now again, understand this. All this happened before time itself. And all of this had nothing to do with you. It's not that he thought you were better than someone else. God did this because of his decision. It was God's decision. But then, and now we move forward into time, as we know it, into our own lifetime, then it says God called you. Now, that doesn't mean God stood on a hillside and said, Phil, 
feel, you know, and, and sort of hopefully called your name in the hope that you might, might come and, and, and listen to him. Sort of like, the, you know, when the kids are out playing in the backyard and it's dinner time, Sam, Sam, where are you? That's not how God called you. This is not the general call that God puts out to anyone and everyone. This is what we call God's effectual call. God reached in and he grabbed your heart and he grabbed your mind and he brought you to faith in Jesus. As the book of Ephesians says, we were dead in our sin and God makes us alive. That's what it talks about being called. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, what does it say next? Look there, it says God justified you. That's actually been the whole point of the book of Romans up to this point. God dealt with your sin. God wiped the slate clean. God declared you innocent because Jesus had paid the price. And so the point here is, if God has done all of that, if the God of the universe knew you before time, if the God of the universe predestined you from before time, and if he's then called you to faith in Jesus, if he's justified you by the death of his son, then how could God not finish that work within you? How could God not also glorify you? To be glorified, in the Bible's way of speaking, is talking about when Christ returns and we are raised with him and sin and death and everything else is done away with once and for all. It means raised to live forever with Jesus. Just look there. I think he purposely puts that future hope in the present tense here. Do you see that? I think he's making the point. This is a done deal. God will glorify you. So I hope you see the point. For God to not finish his work in us would be like a person who, who sort of dreams up a wonderful new sports car and then they, they go to their study and they draw up the plans and then they raise the money to, to produce it and then they get it made absolutely how they want it to be and then they take it for a drive and two minutes from home it runs out of petrol and they say, oh, well, I'll leave it on the side of the road. You wouldn't do it, would you? No sane person would do that. God will see his people home. That's the point this is making. And so if you go back to verse 28, that is the good that God promises every person who loves Jesus. This life might not work out. You may face suffering and pain and loss. Your, your this world dreams and aspirations might fall through. But keep trusting Jesus. Do not give up on God because God will finish what he started. And I want to say to you, that is not a platitude. That is the most wonderful truth to hold on to. There is nothing better than what God promises us here in Romans 8.28. If you are not gripped by Romans 8.28, I have nothing more to offer you. God has nothing more to offer you. This is it. This is as good as it gets. Troy was not exaggerating when he made that point about how wonderful this chapter is. This is the most wonderful truth that's ever been shared. But now, much more briefly, let's turn to this last wonderful part of the chapter. Come with me to verses 31 to 39, which I've called, How Can We Be Sure? One of the most amazing things about we sinful human beings is how it doesn't matter what God does, and it doesn't matter what God says, we find ways to doubt him, and especially to doubt his goodness. 
It's, it's just a part of sinful human beings. If you think about it, it started with Adam and Eve. You remember our studies in Genesis, back in Genesis 1 to 3, earlier in the year? Here's Adam and Eve. They have experienced the creation of the world firsthand. They have God walking with them in his creation, which is totally good in every sense. And then it only takes a little whisper from the devil and they start doubting, does God really love us? Does God really have our best interests at heart? It doesn't matter what God does, what God says, we human beings find ways to doubt him. And so what the Apostle Paul does here is for his last part of Romans 8, 8, he asks this series of rhetorical questions. It's just sort of one after the other, each building on top of the other. And what it's designed to do is bludgeon us. I couldn't think of a better word than that. It's designed to just hit you, oh, in a good way, over and over again on the head. To say, do you understand just how secure your hope in Jesus is? Do you understand just how amazing the love of God is? So come with me through his final verses. Look for verse 31. It says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You see the point? If the God who made the universe with a word is for you, who or what else do you have to worry about? Now, in any analogy I make, I tried to come up with this, can't quite capture it. I thought I could say, you know, uh, if, if the President of the United States is for you, but that divides people these days, and you, you, you know, that, that sort of thing. Or maybe, you know, if you're best mates with the six foot six rugby captain in the school play, playground, what do you have to worry about? You know, but six foot six rugby captains get up to no good in our world. So, the point here is, if God, there's no analogy because no one else is both all-powerful and all-good. But if the all-powerful and all-good God is for you, what do you have to worry about? Look at verse 32. He says, He, God, did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? See what he's saying? He's saying if God has done the most costly thing possible... Give his son to pay the price for your sin. If, if God has done the most costly thing possible for you, if God has already loved you by sending his son to die for you, how could you ever doubt him? How could you ever doubt that he will finish his work in you? How could you ever doubt that God does not have your eternal good in mind? But, someone might say, well, what about my own sin? I know that I still sin. Sometimes my own heart makes me ask, can God really love me? Can God really forgive me? Sometimes the devil whispers in my ear, you're not good enough. God can't really accept you. Well, look at verse 33. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? He's saying, if, if the righteous God of the universe has already declared you innocent, what does it matter what anyone else says? If God has chosen you, if God has declared you righteous, then what does it matter what your silly mind says? What does it matter what the devil says? It's like that old song, the Christian kid in the Simpsons sings. You know, if, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. That, that is biblical truth. That is good theology. Sing that song. God is for you. So who can be against you? And more than that, who, who else do we have in our corner? Look at the rest of verse 34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. 
So you see, you have Jesus who died for your sin. Jesus who defeated death. You have him arguing your case. Who on earth do we possibly have to fear if we have Jesus on our side? His point is to say to you, seriously, who? Tell me. Tell me, because there is no one. And so that brings us to the climax of the chapter and the climax of the book of Romans, really. Come to verse 35 and what it says. It says, who, or for that matter what, can separate us from the love of Christ? It's a serious question he's asking at that point. He's saying to you, come up with someone. Is there someone, is there something, is there anyone who can separate you from the love of Christ? And so he lists things out. Look at what he says. He says, can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword All of those things can hurt us a lot, can't they? And they're actually all things the Apostle Paul experienced. They can even take your life away, but they cannot take away what is most important, what God has in store for you beyond this world. They cannot separate you from the love of Christ. And so his point is, if you know Christ, you can handle anything, anything this world throws at us. Look at verse 37. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. Where it says there, we're more than victorious, it's literally, we are super conquerors. I prefer that word. It's just not a real word, so they don't translate it that way, but I love it. We are super conquerors. And that does not mean we win fights, because we're turning the other cheek, remember? So it's not saying we win fights, it means no, nothing can destroy what you have through faith in Jesus. It means we persevere in our faith and keep trusting Jesus. So you might think all those things would conspire to destroy your faith. But no, the person who knows Jesus can withstand any of those things through faith in Christ. And so we get to the final part. Look at verse 38. He says, For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that list is not meant to be exhaustive. He isn't inviting you to come up with something he's left off that might just be able to separate you from the love of God. His point is whatever you can think of, however high it is, however low it is, however wide it is, whether it's angels or demons or things in this world, doesn't matter. It can't do it. He's saying, death, what do you care? You get to be with Christ. Whatever life throws at you, what do you care? You have Jesus. The devil, he's got Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is no platitude. That is the greatest truth anyone can know. And so I pray, more than anything, I pray that you know it. And I pray that you cherish it. And I pray that you hold on to it. We're going to pause at this point in Romans. We're going to come back to Romans chapter 9 to 16 next year. Over the summer, we're looking at uh, stories of Jesus in John's Gospel. Uh, But I know that at different points, Romans has been quite complicated. It's been quite challenging to understand. But in the end, the message is really simple. So simple, a child can understand it. Keep trusting Jesus. That's the message. Keep trusting Jesus. For why would you not keep trusting Jesus if you are persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is in love of God, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel that we've learnt in the book of Romans, that we are justified, declared righteous by faith in Jesus, that there is no condemnation for those in Jesus. But Father, we thank you for this assurance that you will complete the work you started in us. And so Father, as we face difficulties in this life, help us always to look forward to what you have in store for us and that certain hope that we will be glorified with Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.